0: morning, church. Good morning. Uh, I'm a little hoarse this morning, so hopefully I can get through this all right. For those that don't know, I'm a um, head wrestling coach at Atlantic Coast High School, and if they would just listen to me the first time, I wouldn't lose my voice. Um, but I think that's a whole different sermon that can be preached on. But uh, we're going to be off in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning if you have your Bibles. Uh, so go ahead and make your way over to 2 Corinthians 5. And I'll meet you there in just a moment. Uh, but I'm very excited and very thankful for this opportunity uh, to be preaching this morning. I know a lot of times when uh, the pastor is not the one giving the word that it tends to be a good skip day. Uh, so I appreciate everyone being here this morning. So my word of the year uh, came pretty quickly uh, this year, which was a little bit different than years past. Um, and it was really a punch to the gut. So I, be- I believe God gave me this word To show me where I can improve. And my word for 2019 is identity. If I'm being honest, and the pastor loves to point out that church is a good place to be honest, I don't always put my identity in Jesus first. And I think if you were being honest with yourself, you would say the same thing. See, this word isn't just for me, though. It's for my little family, Blair and Judah, and for the youth ministry. We as people tend to focus so much on who we are and what we are doing, that we tend to forget what we're supposed to be doing, and that is serving Jesus. We put our identity in so many different things, whether it's being a mother or a father, husband or wife, son or daughter, aunt or uncle, being a good neighbor and friend. We also place our identity in our job, how much money we make or we don't make, or the lifestyle we live. We think those are the things that define us, that make us who we are. I just look at all the categories I can identify as for myself. Husband, father, son, nephew, cousin, uncle, friend, teacher, coach, pastor. And I'm not even going to get started on all the negative things that can be said about me. All right, but I left off the most important one out of all of them. Christian, right? All those things I listed can be really great things. I love being a husband to my wife. I love being a father to my son. I love being a son to my parents. But without being a Christian, you got to, you know, all those things are great, but none of those things are truly great if I don't put my identity in Jesus first. See, Christ must come first in our lives. If not, that is essentially idolatry. Whatever we put in front of God is going to be our God. If we miss every Sunday because of a football game, man, I hate to tell you, that's idolatry. If it's summertime and you are basking in the sun every chance you get, I hate to tell you, that's idolatry. It's not that those things are bad. In and of themselves, they are not bad. But when we put them things above our relationship with Jesus, that's a problem. And you might be saying, missing church doesn't make you a bad Christian. You may be right, but I'm a high school history teacher, and the kids that miss a lot of class tend to not know the material very well, all right? And when it comes to church, we aren't learning about United States history. We are learning about something much more important. We are learning about a holy and perfect God that came and died for each and every one of us. In discipleship, we are currently going through a book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. In this book, Tozer tells us men have now by nature no peace within their hearts, for God is crowned there no longer. But there in the moral dusk, stubborn and aggressive usurpers fight among themselves for first place on the throne. You know, we have to put God first. Understand, we are not people just making mistakes in need of a life coach. We are black-hearted, wretched sinners in need of a savior. When we came To Jesus, everything about us changed, right? Our identity changes because the one we place our identity in changed us. We are no longer the same person. When the love of God is in you, it changes everything about you. We are a new creation. Not a cleaned up version of ourselves, but a new creation. And this brings me to our jumping off verse this morning. 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, verse seventeen, and if you are able and willing, I would ask that you stand as we read God's word. We only have one verse this morning to begin with. We're going to be all over the Bible this morning, but uh chapter five, verse seventeen, the apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we exalt your name above all other names, Jesus. Lord, we place our identity in you because you are a perfect and holy God. Father, may this time be used to glorify your name. May hearts and minds be changed in this place, Lord. And just thank you, thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. I love you so much, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We are new creations when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Our identity changes. When people in the Bible came in the presence of a holy God, they were changed forever. Even name changes happened in some cases. Abram's name changes when God tells him he will be the father of many nations. Abram, or Abraham, meaning the father of many. Jacob, the man who wrestled with God, becomes Israel, which means strives with God. Jacob means he takes by the hill or he cheats. So that's definitely an upgrade for him. We aren't called to change our name when we put our trust in God, but things are going to change. And it changes because we are putting our identity in a holy and perfect God. And that brings me into the first of four truths today concerning when we put our identity in Jesus. It's funny to me, Pastor Micah had several truths last week that he dwindled down to three. Um, I initially had six of them. Um, He got it down to three. I could only get it down to four. So he's been doing this A lot longer than i have um and i you know i got it down to four so hopefully y'all won't revolt against me so i was able to narrow it down just a little bit but the first truth is we place our identity in god because he is holy and perfect some people have an identity crisis a A. w tozer asked and you're going to hear that name a couple more times this morning why do some people find god in a way that others do not why does God manifest his presence to some and let multitudes of others struggle alone in the half-light of imperfect Christian experience? Understand that God does not play favorites. He is not going, you're cool, you're cool, man, I hate that guy, she's terrible. That's, that's not the picture. The picture is, all he has done for any of his children, he will do for all of his children. The difference doesn't lie with God, the difference lies with us. We do not put our full identity in God. God is holy. God is perfect. He is blameless. One day when we are in front of the Lord, we will not be able to point the finger at anyone but ourselves because that's where the fault lies. The only finger point that will be done will be at us. We were the ones that did not draw near to God. We did not abide in God, but we furthered our relationship from him. We have the opportunity to serve a holy and perfect God in 2019. We have the opportunity to grow our relationship with Jesus in 2019. Do not let this opportunity pass us by. Think on this for a minute. A holy God, a God that is separated from all creation, he created all of this, wants to be in relationship with you. He wants you to abide in him so he can abide in you. He wants you to draw near so he can draw near. Is this going to be the year we as individuals and we as a church draw near to God? My hope and prayer is that we continually draw near. He is calling us to draw near, and I pray that we answer that call. In Psalm seventy-seven thirteen, it says, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? There is no God great like our God. In God, we find everything. In ourselves, we find nothing. Well, we find sin, but essentially we find nothing of importance. This is why we put our identity in God. Turn to the back of the Bible for me. Revelation 15, verse 4. And when you get there, give me a hearty amen. Amen. And for everybody else, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. If we put our identity in Christ, we will fear and glorify his name because he alone is holy. All the nations, not some of the nations, not most of the nations, all the nations will come and worship Christ. Does this not make your heart leap for joy? Because if it doesn't, you need to get your pulse checked. This is great news. R.C. Sproul once said a God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, all sovereignty, no justice and no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. If your God is all those things and nothing else, and you are worshiping something else because you're not worshiping the God of the Bible, He is all these things. He is holy, He is sovereign, He is just, and He has wrath. Anything less is an idol we falsely worship. It is so important that we recognize that He is holy and perfect. To say anything less than that is to make less of God. That is who we get when we put our identity in, in Jesus, a holy and perfect God. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to put my identity in anything less. And the second truth this morning we place our identity in God because He will speak into our lives. God is speaking. The whole Bible supports this idea. God is speaking, not God spoke. He is speaking. He is speaking to all of creation. And church, we are part of all of creation. God is speaking to us, but are we listening? And if you are listening, are you doing what he is telling you to do? James one twenty two. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. So be a doer of the word of God. Don't be like my two-year-old son. All right, don't be like Judah when I tell him to pick up his toys. See, Judah will be sitting on the couch, you know, watching his cartoons. He's got a juice box in one hand, his fruit snacks in the other. And I got an uppity little baby. He'll only eat Welch's fruit snacks now. So he's living his best life now watching cartoons, eating snacks. But on the floor, it looks like a demolition derby just took place. All right, cars are everywhere. They could shut down 295 just because of the carnage in my living room, all right? So I'll tell him to get down and pick up his toys. And I know he hears me because he's giving me that side eye, like, I see you, um, and I'm going to acknowledge you for a second, but then he'll slowly turn his head back to the TV and start sipping on his juice box. Now, this is the point where i got to get louder. All right, and I start that three count, and he should be so lucky to get a three count. I didn't get the three count from my father growing up. He didn't have that system in place. All right, so I start, one, two. Then I get to that, and that's when he'll start to get down and start getting his toys. It's always that, life would be so much easier for him and for me if he would just do as I ask the first time around because sometimes he's not quick enough on that, and I get to three, and he has to face the consequences. So the moral of the story Don't be like my two-year-old son when God is talking to you. Do we have the emotional maturity of a two-year-old when God is speaking to us? 1 Corinthians 14.20 Brothers, do not be like children in your thinking. Be infants in evil and your thinking be mature. Now this can even go back to the first truth. Do we make much of God in our thinking? But also, when you hear the voice of God talking in your life, are you acting like a child? Be spiritually mature when it comes to God. When walking in your relationship with the Lord, sanctification, you are becoming more and more Christ-like. And you're going to see spiritual maturity. You know, after 10 years of research, LifeWay states two things about maturity. And if you're taking notes, write these two things down. The first thing, uh, Bible engagement is the number one spiritual discipline for growth. We have to be engaged and involved and disciplined in our bibles every single day and if you're not the church is going through a fantastic bible reading plan right now now i would encourage you to grab a copy of the paper on your way out it also has a really cool app you can download on your phone that has some really great videos to go along with it it is taking us through the entire bible in a year and there isn't a bad time to start reading your bible amen there we go All right, and the second thing about maturity is that Bible engagement affects every other discipline. People who read their Bible every day uh, give more, go more, and evangelize more. If you are wanting to grow your faith, and you won't, and we know that faith produces works, this is how we do it, church. We start by reading the Word of God. Each and every day, we read the Word. And once we start reading the Word, that growth in faith will affect our works. And we don't just read it to store it in our hearts, but because we have tasted and seen how good the Lord really is. And through that, we will do his work. We aren't going to be lukewarm people. We're going to be people with a heart on fire for Jesus. I found a really good quote from Francis Chan about people who live like lukewarm people. And he said, Lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church, so long as it doesn't infringe on their standard of living. Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin they want to be saved from their penalty of their sin lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors co-workers or friends lukewarm people are thankful for their luxuries and comforts and rarely consider trying to give as much as possible to the poor is this the kind of people we want to be is this the kind of church we want to be If we are lukewarm people, then we do not truly believe that the Bible is the voice of a perfect and holy God. Understand that the Bible will never be a living book to us until we understand and believe that God is speaking in his universe. I'm going to end this truth with another quote from Tozer. told you he was coming again. And he said, I think a new world will arise out of the religious myths when we approach our Bible with the idea that it is not only a book which was once spoken, but a book... That is now speaking. So that was our second truth. We place our identity in God because he is speaking into our lives. And moving on to the third truth. We place our identity in God because he paid for us with a steep price. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But Jesus paid that price for you, because Christ took it all on the cross. The pastor reminds us often that the gospel can be summed up in four words. Christ in our place he paid the price for our sin it was Jesus who cashed in the check that we couldn't we die because we are sinners but even that is not primarily what Romans 6 23 is talking about Six twenty three is not talking about uh, eventual physical death but it's also talking about eternal spiritual death in our sin we are separated from God not just now but forever because we have committed even just one sin before an infinitely holy and perfect God. And because he is just, we warrant an infinitely eternal sentence. We are dead without God. We are dead in our sins. Ephesians 2.1 says, and don't miss this, As a result of our deadness and sin, we are completely unable to save ourselves. How can someone who is dead bring himself to life? How many of you one day before you were born decided I'd like to be born right now? It's impossible, right? It's impossible to give yourself life. Someone else has to do that for you. Now we are getting to the core of the gospel. You cannot save yourself. You cannot we cannot save ourselves no matter how much we pray. No matter how much we read or study the Bible, how much we go to church and worship, no matter how much good we do in the world, we are dead without God. And we need him to give us life. We are dead in the water. We are not floating on top, gasping for air. We are at the bottom of the ocean, feeding the fishes kind of dead. And it's Jesus who is our spiritual lifeguard, who breathes life into us who brings us back from the dead all because he paid the price we couldn't. Is that not good news? We have rebelled against God. We have turned away from God to ourselves, and we are separated from him. Now we have guilt, we have shame, and we have fear in our lives, all intended to wake us up from this reality. And because God is just, we are condemned before him in our sin. We are dead, and no matter work on our part, and no amount of work on my part can ever overcome our deadness. But that's the beauty. God has done in Jesus what we could never do for ourselves. God sent his son to pay the price, and Jesus did just that. First Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He died So we may die to sin. We are healed because he was wounded. The only man made things in heaven are the wounds of Jesus. It will be there for all eternity to remind us of what he did for us on that cross, that it was him that bore it all on the cross. It's the same reason when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection that he showed them his wounds. Jesus proved that he who appeared to them was the same one who was crucified. If his scars weren't there, some people would have been skeptical of who he was. Now there is no doubt that the man that died on the cross was the same that is standing in front of them. It is the same for us when we get in front of Jesus. There will be no doubt who paid the steep price for us, and it will stand as a constant reminder for all eternity. And we need to understand what heaven is. Heaven is being in the constant presence of a perfect and holy God. John Piper bakes down this point very well when he said, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. And if we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. The goal of a Christian is not heaven. The goal of a Christian is to be with God. Philippians 3.14, 20 and 21 say, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. For our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. There are many Christians today who have dif- difficulty grasping the promise and hope of our faith. Do you find it surprising that believers are unsure or confused about their future? And by their future, I am referring to what will become of us after we leave this world behind and go to be with the Lord. There are many respectable Christians that struggle with what happens after this life is over. I recently heard one believer at my school wonder aloud if heaven is actually the goal. Living in a fallen and sinful world, it is often very easy to lose sight of our goal and our identity as a follower of Christ. I've heard many Christians say that we should be focused on doing as much good works as we can in this world. I'd agree with that statement. Our faith produces works. However, I would not consider that my ultimate goal as a believer. It is essential that we keep our focus on the final goal, and that is to be in a constant relationship with God. The Apostle Paul also urges us to stay focused on our final goal, which is heavenward, in Christ Jesus Paul wants us as believers to know that our greatest hope is not found in our earthly lives but rather in heaven when we will be in, with Christ Paul writes about being with Christ in heaven as the supreme goal of those who believe in Jesus in writing to the church at Colossus Paul says since then you have been raised with Christ set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's Colossians 3, 1 through 4. I remember the many conversations I had with my grandfather about what life would be like in heaven. We would sit and talk for long periods of time about what he thought heaven would be like and feel like. He was a Southern Baptist preacher. My grandfather would talk about those that had gone on before him and how much he looked forward to once again seeing those loved ones in heaven. Although I didn't realize it at the time, my grandfather would often refer to how wonderful it would be to be at home with the Lord. He used to talk us, uh, to ask us all the time if we wanted to go to heaven. When my older brother was just a kid, my grandfather asked him if he wanted to go to heaven. And his response was, not tonight. He got a kick out of that response. But he knew that the ultimate goal of a follower of Christ is to be in the presence of our Lord and Savior in heaven. If our focus is upon Christ and placing our identity in Jesus every day of our lives, then we will accomplish meaningful and worthwhile things as we live out our lives on this earth. But keeping our focus on Jesus, our hearts and minds will open to meeting the needs of those all around us. We will become more Christ-like as we live out our mission to be the hands and feet of Jesus to a weary and hurting world. As followers of Christ, our minds must not be set on earthly things, but rather upon him, who will empower us to care for and minister to those who are in need of mercy and grace. Paul in Galatians refers to heaven as the Jerusalem that is above. Heaven is where Christ lives and reigns. And as Christians, we are already citizens of that glorious heaven. There are many Christians who struggle with the concept of heaven and what eternal life there will be like. They fret and wonder about the details of heaven, and they lose sight of the fact that the most important aspect of heaven is that we will be in the presence of Christ, our Lord and Savior. So we place our identity in Jesus because he is perfect and holy, because he speaks into our lives, He paid for us with a steep price. And this last truth is because we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. As believers in Christ, there is a great exchange that has taken place when Christ paid the ultimate price for us. One of those things exchanged in our sin is our sin for Jesus' own righteousness. Righteousness is an attribute that uh, there is... uh, Excuse me, I lost my place righteousness is an attribute of moral purity belonging to God alone if he is if he it is he alone who is truly righteous no one in the world is righteous in the eyes of the Lord that is except the Christian we are counted righteous in the eyes of God when we receive Jesus by faith our righteousness is based on what Jesus did on the cross the righteousness that was Christ is counted to us we then are seen as righteous in the eyes of God. Though we are actually worthy of damnation, we are made righteous. And that is through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. As a result, we will spend eternity in the presence of a holy, perfect, pure, loving, kind, gentle, and righteous God. Romans 3.22 says, The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. This is saying God can bestow the righteousness on all who believe in Him, Jew or Gentile, because all people, without distinction, fail miserably to live up to the divine standard. And that is because all have sinned, but in Christ and Christ alone we are made righteous. Martin Luther said, This is that mystery which is rich in divine grace on two sinners. Wherein, by wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ is not Christ's, but ours. He has emptied himself on his righteousness that he might clothe us in it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that we might deliver us from them. To quote the president, this has to be one of the worst trade deals in history. We get a perfect and holy God's righteousness, and he gets our sin. That's like trading in a rusted bicycle that has no seat, no handlebars, no tires, doesn't even have a chain on it for a Ferrari. All right, this is an amazing deal for us. And he does that because he wants a relationship with us. Jesus wants us. We're clothed in righteousness to abide in him and to draw near to him. We can pray and speak with our Lord. You know, the men and women of the Old Testament didn't have that luxury. We have that because of Christ. And since we have that opportunity, our prayer life reveals our identity or our lack thereof. You see, Jesus said in Luke six forty five, a good man brings out good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Out of the overflow of the mouth, or out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? Think about the last few days of your life. What did you spend most of your time talking about? Was it your job? Your family or another relationship? Some new purchase? Your worries and your fears? Or better yet, what do you find yourself never talking about? What did not make its way into your conversations? Our prayers are produced by the overflow, the excess, the abundance of our hearts. My prayer life, the content in my prayers, or my lack of prayers, reveals what I put my identity in. Or how can we pr- pray, or how we pray can also reveal how we identify. When we pray through supplication, crying out to God, if that is absent or anemic, it reveals we're not desperate. And maybe we're comfortable with the things as they are and don't feel the need. Maybe it's just a lack of trust. We don't think prayer really makes a difference. Or quite possibly it's just a reflection of pride. We're confident in our resources and our abilities. We're not desperate. But if I can be honest with you, sometimes... It's what I ask for that uncovers my heart. I'm not after him. I'm after what he can do for me. It seems that too many of my requests are material and physical and temporary. My heart is hungry for comfort and ease and luxury and safety and success. My requests expose my heart. My heart is not desperate for him. But can we be honest today? How many of us already know this about ourselves? It doesn't take much to convince us that Jeremiah 17.9 is right. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But what do we do about it? We pray. We pray because praying changes our identity. At some point, all of us has heard somebody say, just follow your heart. Can we talk about how absurd that is for just a moment? Whether you're a Christian or not, we know that our hearts are absolutely unreliable, right? The Bible never tells us to follow our hearts. It tells us to guard our hearts. It tells us to hide God's word in our hearts, rend our hearts, ask for a clean heart, receive a new heart, pray for an undivided heart, love, serve, and trust God with all your heart. Listen, you and I aren't supposed to feel our way into praying. We're supposed to truth our way in it. My prayers are not supposed to be an expression of my feelings. My prayers should be an expression of my faith, anchored in the truth of God's word. That kind of praying changes everything. I'm going to leave this time with a prayer challenge for 2019. Pray to God that we place our identity in Jesus. And if you feel like you have, continue to pray that you continue to identify in Christ. And if, and if you want another challenge, I pray, pray for an opportunity to point people to Jesus. Because that's a prayer God cannot wait to answer. Right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, just thank you that you alone are holy and perfect. Lord, we are desperate people in need of a perfect and holy Savior. Lord, may we continually put our identity in you. May we strive to abide and draw near to you. Lord, don't let us listen to our hearts because our hearts are deceitfully wicked. We follow you and you alone, Jesus. And if there's anyone in here today, Lord, that does not know you, that they come to know you, just thank you for this time. Uh, preaching your word lord thank you for this congregation just continue to use us continue to mold us into the men and women and christians you want us to be father just thank you lord thank you amen